following program may contain coarse language, suggestive dialogue, and discussion of violent imagery and sexual situations. It is intended for mature listeners who can tell the difference between facts and opinions. Hi, everybody. This is Steve Staley, the ADR director for Demon Slayer and the Promised Neverland, and you are listening to a Toonami Faithful podcast exclusive. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this Toonami Faithful exclusive. My name is Paul Buscrillo, and with me today I have... Hey, it's editorial writer, Vlord GTZ. And today we have a special exclusive interview for you. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Hi, everybody. This is Steve Staley speaking to you from Los Angeles, where I am just sitting here thinking about the characters that I've played in anime on Toonami. <laughs> <laughs> And you're also you're also a director, and that's why we we're having you on today. Because it's true, I've spent more time in the last three years directing than I have uh, on acting in that kind of animation. Anyway, I still have all my uh, you know commercials and stuff that I do in the the other part of voiceover. Yep. So we'll we'll get into that too. We'll get into uh, your directing, and obviously you're you're also a voice actor too. You've done a lot of things, as I can see on your IMDb page. So. Um, but um, I'm old. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm old, but that's not the point. Um, so let's get started with um, how did you get your your start in voice acting? Um, my story is relatively typical in that I came to California from Colorado to be a actor on purpose to go to college. And then after college, I moved up from uh, Orange County, where I went to school at Chapman University, and then um, started pursuing acting, you know, on-camera acting. I wanted to be a TV star, movie star, like everybody else who moves here. And um, I I was pursuing that during the normal channels, doing all those things. It was 21, you know, and then uh, I had a roommate, and she said, let's, you want to take a voiceover class? And I said, okay, let's do it. And so I took this voiceover class with her. And, um, during that class, it was just apparent to me that this was something that I was good at. And I had considered voiceovers because when you're out here acting, you're thinking of all the ways people sell this skill for money. Right. And so voiceovers is always on the table because it's something that actors do. And anyway, when I realized I was good at it, I thought, well, now I can kind of tilt some of my endeavor in this direction. And, um, the, the fast forward is that I started getting picked up on, you know, it wasn't quite as much of a obstacle as on camera. Uh, I felt doors open when I would go in that direction. And so I followed those open doors and then realized at a certain point that it was worth it to put all of my energy and focus into voiceover or at least the majority i still stay doing on camera and tv commercials for quite a while just because it's what you do you know it's how it's how you are an actor so that's what happened and so i can't say that i fell into it but it wasn't on purpose if that makes sense it, the doors just opened in that direction right right so was and we'll get to we'll get to some of your roles a little bit later here in the interview. But um, I was wondering, how did how did uh, you start into directing some of the the shows that you that you direct now? Uh, as a direct result of um, being an actor uh, and a relationship over the years between myself as an actor and then. Uh, the studio with bang zoom. And, um, it, I was just asked if I'd be interested. And when I was asked, I thought, yes, I'd be interested because I had been lucky enough to have the lifestyle of an actor for a long time. And there was a, a part of it that was just getting old. Uh, and, and I liked the idea of having something already on the books, something, going something ongoing not having to just keep waiting for bookings to happen even though i had done well it just seemed like something 
smart and interesting to say yes to. And so I was offered. I did not pursue it. So, like, being an actor for so long, though, did having that experience, like, give you kind of a good grasp on, like, what a voice direction role would be like? Directing and acting are the two sides of the same coin. And so in in the, that answer is yes. And in my study in acting, like, I've stayed in acting class always, uh, except this year because it's been a pandemic but i have been in acting class ever since college once a week for four hours we we can sing in the class and so as continued study of scene study and and art in that way in the performing arts you build a vocabulary and you direct an acting class i also taught for a casting agency for 18 years you just build up a vocabulary so it's to me, the skill set is one and the same, and it's a natural progression. So even my first day of directing, I wasn't ever the, – the main worry I had, I guess, going into it was would, would I be able to understand the protocols um, and the organizational part of it, what they needed me to do. But then once I got that down – and that's procedural. That's not artistic. Uh, so two sides of the same coin, and I built a vocabulary over – teaching voiceovers and then studying an acting class to know how to deal with actors and, and coax performances that I'm looking for. Yeah. So like when you like, you're doing voice direction, do you feel like you have to prep more for say a show since you're directing like multiple actors and like looking at like their deliveries of lines? My answer actually is no, and my justification for that is directing dubbing is very specific. It's different than directing a scene in an uh, in a theater or a sitcom or even a feature. In that, you're servicing something that's already done. It's already happened. The story has already been written. The arcs are all already there. What? What we have to focus on, at least as a director where I'm coming from, is creating truthful, in-the-moment versions of whatever is going on in this scene. So regardless of the scene or in the question that you asked, preparation, in a way it's irrelevant if the character is screaming something. You asshole! Well, I don't need a bunch of background to know what an actor has to put into screaming that line separate from the plot of the show, separate from anything else other than an actor conjuring and calling upon the parts of themselves that make that moment realistic from a point of view of how an actor evaluates it to the, to the emotion. And so my answer is very honestly is candidly is a better word is that I just go on instinct because as I've often said, if I don't know how to if I don't know how to do this job, then what do I know how to do? Because mm-hmm. I've spent my whole adult life doing this. So how how do I not know how what is supposed to be going on here? And I honestly I trust my instincts more than that and my ear. I rely on that. Mm. So like going into say like one of the shows that you've like voiced for been a voice director for say like demon slayer Uh like for demon slayer specifically did you feel like going on instinct like was kind of beneficial at times like did you reference say like the japanese performances well now that happens always that's part of what i mean by it's already done the arcs are already in the show i don't need to worry about a character arc because here it is painted already in front of me and it's our job to serve that so So that's the instinct I'm going with. Now, obviously, in terms of what I say to the talent, there are things about the plot that lead right up that they need to know and and understand or that kind of preparation. Um, Or overall things like, here's what I know about this character, right? Those things are helpful for an actor to know. But they don't need to be volumes, in my opinion. In this particular sector, if we were directing a play for Broadway or a movie, I would have a whole different answer for this. But for this job, giving someone an idea of the character and 
what this is about and then understanding the scene and then understanding the the moment and throwing it out because an actor is also only working on instinct you get the booking and you could show up and show you don't know anything about and since it's maybe you can't find the sub version and it's or it's not online or you haven't been able to see it you have to just hear everything they've said to you and combined with the director and then even sometimes when management is there you know the client talking about what they want out of the character you come up with something and then Use your instincts the the rest of the way. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, because I, I definitely felt in Demon Slayer especially, the performances always felt very true to the characters. Like, it didn't feel like it was necessarily, like, kind of relying on, say, like, referencing solely the Japanese or, like, solely just some other reference. It felt like it was kind of encapsulating what the character is and then using what the voice actor is best at and kind of combining that the one performance specifically oh go ahead oh no go ahead uh just what you said about you utilizing the talents in front of me that's i i'm also for the most part know know these people and so i know what i can get right i'm working with them collaborating Mm, right, right. Yeah, like uh, when we interviewed Bryce Pappenbrook a while back about like uh, his performance as Inosuke, I, I definitely kind of felt that where like it feels like a performance that very much Bryce is best at. And it's also encapsulating what, say, the character of Inosuke uh, embraces. So it was kind of like a really good unity. I mean, I loved what he did. I never, we never stopped laughing when he would throw out line readings because we, that, that's what we were looking for. And, um, uh, what I would say to your comment and what I said previously is to most of the time in a situation like that, like just let Bryce do it. I, I don't try to overlord. I would rather someone's creativity drive it obviously it's within the parameters of what the client wants in the role i mean that's sort of just a given but in terms of what he does that that plus we're taking a bunch of takes right it's all put together so um i just let bryce do his thing <laughs> yeah i mean that, that's like, awesome. specifically i can think of like I, I also feel like that when i'm working anyway with ray chase I'll just, I mean, most with anybody, but these two examples come to mind that it's like, well, let's just show, just do something, come up with something. You do your part, I'll do my part, and I'll let you do whatever you want. Uh, And I find that that is a really successful strategy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just awesome, though. But, like, I guess going back to kind of what you were mentioning earlier, like, have there ever been any instances where, like, maybe a lack of information or kind of, like, uh, st- strict limitations were given on how you could direct a dub? In, it, meaning the latitude I have as the director? Yes. Well, yes, I hear what you're saying, and I guess I would say yes. 100% of the time, I have to do what they want. So even though I'm saying all this about freedom... I make sure that that freedom is all corralled within the parameters of what they want. And if it's not what they want, well, then there's pickups. And, or like in the case of Demon Slayer, there's a lot of involvement then and there, right there in the room. So I have the answer already with me from a client. But in terms of creating something, in terms of making takes in the moment, line readings, letting them be free and then if i've heard a line five times then we all decide right so so Mm. that's that's the freedom and then the parameters are there and that's why there's multiple takes right yeah that makes sense but i guess like well how i was thinking about like say like uh if say you're like dubbing detective conan episode one or as opposed to like dubbing uh demon slayer would, like, the strictness of how free you could be with, like, 
how you direct those dubs be different? To me, no. I feel it would be the same exact strictness always. Mm, okay. <laughs> uh, and, because I never have the final word. I get to craft it all the way I want it, which is great, but I don't. Then I pass it on to the next chain, you know? And then at some point, someone has the final word and it sticks or it comes back through for pickups because of mistakes or because somebody wants a different vision. I remember one time in this show, Ico, uh, there was a scene that went, when we finished it, I was particularly proud. Me and the actor both was like, oh, that's so lovely. And of all the shows I ever directed, one where the entire scene was asked to be redone, it was that scene. So it's in the eye of the beholder. So my most successful strategy is to just do my own thing and then, for the most part, let it fit in the pro- the parameters, the constructs of what the, the client is looking for. Does that sort of make sense in what you're asking? But I still yeah. always feel their, their oh. parameters on, on what I'm doing. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's like I don't def- get to change anything. I don't get to say that now this character doesn't have a deep, growling, scary voice. It's a, a tiny, you know, I can't make those choices. But you, you can't have a you can't have a nosuke have a squeaky high voice. Or, or yeah, some wrong <laughs> choice just because it's what I want. It also comes down to the casting. The most important thing in the, the dubbing is the casting. If it's cast correctly, there's nothing for me to do. Right, and like most of the casting is done before, like not uh, me. The actor is doing it. Yeah, I mean, and... I play my part. When I watch those shows, I know what all those takes sounded like, and so I see the part that I play. But the actors are the ones who are right out front. So, if they're cast well, there isn't much for me to do because they already get it. Bryce comes in, he sees the Nosuke, I got it. I know what I'm going to do. Right, yeah, they're they're already in the right direction for the role, so it's mm-hmm. just kind of like going only, with the role. Only occasional does someone have to uh, stretch or go into something that they don't normally get cast for. Hmm. So have Which there been any uh, have there been any specific situations you can think of that you've had that feeling where like an actor that you've had to direct has had to kind of stretch? Hmm. I don't know if I would say that. I know that I have directed performances to be maybe more heightened than what an actor brought on take one, but I look at that more as just part of our collaboration. Uh, so, no, I would say the casting is more truth casting in that, you know, the people who are right for the part are already on it. That's just the way... It works in Hollywood, in casting in general. That's the point of it, you know? Yeah, okay. So, I guess... Oh, go ahead. Even... Even just from the acting, my own... If When I played this character, McGillis, in um, Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans, that wasn't a traditional part that I would get to play. It got to be a little deeper and darker... So that's kind of an example of stretching out what before had been my milieu of young heroes. Um, But that doesn't qualify as a stretch. It just qualifies as outside something I normally get asked to do. Mm, Does that make sense? (laughs) It's just outside of what I would be asked to do, but still in a realm of something I absolutely do. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess going kind of back into more of your voice acting, uh, have there been like a lot of kind of more roles that have been a bit of a challenge for you in like your memory? Like what what would you feel like is the biggest challenge for you when approaching a role? Well, in, in the past, I had a part on a like one of the very first CGI cartoons called uh, Starship Troopers uh, Roughneck Chronicles. And I had a character called Colonel Tafai, and he was an alien. And so I did have to come up with a full-on 
character and he had a voice and there was a whole thing, you know, and I, so I had to practice and figure out what he was and how he would say the lines. I really rehearsed those scripts before going in because I wasn't just acting out, uh, you know, an American. I was this alien with a full on cartoon voice and, uh, um, that required uh, just special preparation in terms of keeping that character uh, in, if that makes sense. I can't remember the other part of your question, but. No, no, that, that answered it. Yeah, I mean, like, that, that seems like it would be kind of like a bit more of a offbeat type of role. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, so I could definitely see how that would be a challenge. Yeah, it, you know, at the time and even now, there's just so many auditions and you just audition and audition. And sometimes you get the things that you get and you're like, well, OK, I guess I better figure out how to do this thing I just got. Mm, right. And like you've had the opportunity to be in like a bunch of big shows too. like obviously like you were Neji in Naruto and Hitsugai and Bleach. Yeah. How does it feel to kind of had a kind of presence in those pillars of the anime community? Well, it, it's only now that that starts seeming like something because in the middle of it, it was just like going to work. You know what I mean? But uh, as as it goes on, you're like, wow, all the people <laughs> interviewing me today were watching Naruto when they were in elementary school or whatever, because it was on for like 13 years. And uh, still, you know, because of the modern world, still out there. And it, it's like, wow, that's really something. At the time, I wasn't so much thinking about it. I was thinking about how great it was to have a job that kept going and going and going and how unusual that is in um, any kind of show business. And then to have that and Bleach happen at the same exact time and then to have two completely different characters on Bleach, that... Uh, that was cool. And especially in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm sure, like, there, there are definitely a lot of people, including myself, that, like, have grown up with those series and are also now, like, even in the voice acting community. Yeah. I think so, too, when I see people or even work with people who are, who are, honest to God, they were born the year I first started acting, you know? And I'm not that old, but time goes by. <laughs> and it's like, wow, I was doing, say, what year were you born? Like 1994. I was like, wow, that's when I started doing voiceovers. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's when you were born. And now here you are in my studio. Like, just weird. Yeah, so I right. mean, yes. Yeah, that's, that's crazy to think about. And I think, like, it's also interesting, too, like, by, like, voice directing, say, like, Demon Slayer and, like, The Promised Neverland, You've essentially, like, been now involved with, like, a new generation of anime fans, too, because as those have yeah, become I, juggernauts. Yeah, I, I realize that, especially, um, well, when I, when I first started directing, even just pop shows that were popular. I was like, wow, this is a whole, I thought of it the way you just said it, actually, that it was like, this is a whole new era of popular anime and here i am part of it on the other side Ooh, yeah and promise neverland uh, i can't wait to see what happens there because it's only it only just occurred right L like last year and only one season because at this point we've done two seasons of demon slayer and a movie so it's out there neverland is exciting to see what what becomes of it yeah, there, there's just like a ever-growing pot of potential there. Yeah, but that show is fun because of just how different it, so different than anything I've ever done. It's that idea and the playing on fears from your childhood and yet it's not scary, but it is. And oh my God, it's so wild, that show. Yeah, especially since it's like, it's hard to put Neverland into like a single camp. Like it has yeah. elements of action, but also horror and thriller. Yes. <laughs> and children, it's starring children. There's no adults in it except a couple. 
and the and the adults are usually the villains too. So it's yeah, like... so it's just terrifying all around. But but also not, but very dear and sweet. And the and it was that 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 was fun building that show because we you know it had to be right and um that it was fun building that show <laughs> just figuring out what we should do with this or how can we make it sound or here's what the japanese did what if, what if you do this right and i've got these ideas now try it like this and um it was fun building that and i'd seen actually a lot of nice compliments about the performances on online and i was like yeah everybody did do a, a good job we really tried to make it live up to the original in performance and uh i think everybody nailed it yeah i mean i totally agree like i think neverland especially i think emma um erica mendez is emma i think she did like such a wonderful job especially like with how like shifting in emotions emma has to be like cunning but also very caring for her family like right it and and uh as far as the anime is drawn it is drawn very real i don't mean artistically just what they their their uh concept it's very very real it's not like um fantasy it's v- it's very real until the parts that are fantasy and so it was fun help so like when when bad shit happens to erica's character it, it's not some kind of cartoony freak out it's got to be real the way a kid would really freak out mm, you know so it's yeah. a little bit different than uh you know you know a different than insert less grave show name insert action show number like a hundred <laughs> yeah or even different than conan for example conan's real but it's on this heightened level whereas uh uh Neverland is sort of uh on a on a real level and that's what makes it so unsettling and cuz then you do get into this heightened fantasy level and you're like wait what oh my god there's a monster killing so, children so, in the first episode <laughs> yeah so since Neverland was kind of a lot different than other anime how how would you like kind of go about like directing actors in that? Obviously, like there's the source material to go off, there's the performances, but like how you were directing actors, did that particularly change at all? No, still instinct. Uh, <laughs> but I do feel like I in that show was allowed to err on the side of quiet, not necessarily as present as some of it could have been i really think in a show like that the the less push a performance has the more effective it is in that so that that was something i was aware of but Mm, playing the scene playing the scene is the most important thing not the overall plot it's already been worked out this isn't that kind of a production that's all been figured out we have to figure out how to play those scenes and make them real especially since everybody's doing it separately i have to keep all that in my my head and hope that we don't have crashing line readings do you usually have to like keep notes of like uh, certain things that you've done with actors so that you can keep it consistent like when they're in the booth not really you would think but not really, because I already know how I want it to be, and it just lines up that way. And since you're doing it out of order, and it just it ends up just piling on. So who's ever first gets to dictate a certain amount of what's happening, because that's the performance that the others are going to play off of. And then there's two people in the scene, and the third one has to play off those two. So it, it just builds. Right, and then it yeah, just becomes what it is when you're done. And almost all the time when you're done, you watch it and you're like, well, I'll be damned. I turned right, out, right into a cartoon. It's like you're putting like little pieces of a puzzle together. Yeah, and so <laughs> building that, but with my concepts of these scenes as we, you know, as we get into it. Mm, yeah. Like in Neverland in particular, I, one thing I always like find fascinating about it is like, in the performances, a lot of the time, 
what really kind of conveys stuff is what they don't say. And it's like being kind of concise, but filled with emotion in those deliveries that really make it effective. Yeah. And there's a lot of um, close up uh, reaction shots, right? That tension is, the tension is built in. Yeah, and then definitely. actors get a lot of credit for creating that tension, but it's collaboration. <laughs> yeah, you know, the I moment mean... is crafted perfectly. The actor brings their their uh, part, and it makes a greater work of art. You know what I mean? You you take my art, the actor's art, the creator's art, the the uh, illustrators. You know, and then it it just it all adds up. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously, yeah, there are a ton of different moving parts that go into a dub. And you've also done, like, a bit of, uh, a bit of, like, dialogue directing, too, specifically on, like, Kakegurui and shows like that. Uh-huh, that was my first show, which, uh, I love that show. Talk about energetic and different. Got to, all, all those girls get to come in and knock it out of the park. I think it was Erica Harlicker's first leading, leading role. And, um, it had a, a fun to it. Kakagurui was definitely different being about the gambling than, uh, and essentially no mystical element at all. Uh, uh, other than just the unreality of it all, but not no mystical element, supernatural element, I guess I should say. And, um, all the girls kicking ass. It was a fun show. Hard to do. A lot of lines. A lot of talking. Yeah, like, that show has a very high energy, I feel. Man, There's no, like, uh, moot moments. Oh, my God, there isn't. <laughs> we get the things. I'm like, look at all these lines. The count, you know? I'm like, see how many more lines there are in this show than in whatever show we did before this? Look at all these lines. Yeah, for sure. Like, I guess, like, in terms of preference, like, what do you kind of prefer doing in dub production? Like, is it the voice acting? Is it the voice direction? Uh, dialogue direction? Like, what what it would be your go-to if you had the option in the show? Wow, that's a hard answer. My in my instincts would answer that question. Acting, acting pays the most amount of money for the least amount of work. So, of course, I want to do <laughs> acting. Um, but the directing has its own uh, satisfaction, and I am someone who does not mind. I don't mind being behind the camera. I, I, you would have thought that I would have a lot of need for attention when I was younger, but the truth is I, I turned out not to need that, so I'm okay with playing my part and helping other people look good and, and um, getting to be in charge of it and having a uh, sense of accomplishment when it's all done different from acting. Because when you're acting, you just leave. You don't even know what scene you were just a part of. Like I, for example, I think the show is Sword Art. You'll correct me, maybe you know, where I played a character recently. It was a, a scene. I had to get approval to play it because it was kind of a rape scene or some weird thing. And then I ended up getting my arms and legs cut off. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I believe Rios. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yes, he had he was in several episodes, but not enough that when I left, even after doing that, that horrible scene, which was so much fun, me and Alex putting that together, uh, just because when do you get to do that? You know, get your arms cut off and do this whole, the, the nasty, scary stuff of it being so horrifying. There was something thrilling to playing something like that. Uh, but then when I left, think about it my total time spent on that entire show is less than three hours and I, by that i mean entire season two seasons of that show so so the actor my sense of accomplishment is different than directing it's a directing i get to see the whole thing as an actor sword art is just a great example because that i had to give a lot to make that work but it's not an example of a show that i'm familiar with like that i know what was going on just because i played this pivotal role we just gave it our all in that scene to make it the way it was. And I remember when we watched it back, we were all like, oh, you know, we, we were happy with it anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially, like, I, I feel like the longer you are with a show, like, probably the more kind of acclimated and uh, memorable it would become. <laughs> yeah, like Naruto, I know what was going on because I was there so much and in so many of the scenes. Same with Bleach. It was always funny to come across storylines in those two shows that I had never intersected with and be like, I don't remember that happening. When did that happen? Well, you weren't there. I was like, yeah, okay, I guess you're right. Yeah, that's kind of funny because, yeah, like characters like Nenshi and Hitsugaya, like they'll have instances where, like, yeah, they're very important for an arc. And then they're maybe not there they'll be gone. The best yeah. part about Neji was getting to be in the spinoff with um, Danielle and everybody, and Brian of, uh, well, what we called it was called Rock Lee and Friends, but I don't think that's the title that it ended up having. It was a, a little Naruto satire where we all played little bobble dolls of our characters. Rock yes, Lee. yes. Rockley and his ninja pals, I think it's called. Rockley and his ninja pals. What did I just say a second ago? Rockley Rock and, and friends. friends. Close yeah, enough. We call like it, a lot of times you get a job and the title is one thing, and when it comes out, it's another thing. But because you worked on it when the title was this, my only interaction with that show, it was called Rockley and Friends. So it's hard to, <laughs> to have to say the other title because I don't really remember it because it was gone from my life by the time it changed titles, you know? <laughs> oh, that's funny. But that was fun doing that show just because it was a lark and it was, get to, it was fun getting to make fun of Neji in a good way, the, all those episodes. and Yeah. I, I, I wonder, so like when you're like your voice acting, like are there certain types of shows that you prefer, like a comedy or like an action series? Like obviously you don't always necessarily have the choice, but if you did, like, what would you prefer to voice act in? Hmm. I, my only answer that I can give to that is one where I don't have to scream. That didn't used to bother me, but as the years have gone on, of course I hate screaming. I hate it, but it's part of the job. You got, you got to do it. Other than that, I have to tell you, that is not how I approach the work. To me, it is, you go in. It used to be a piece of paper, now it's a TV screen, but you go in, there's a piece of paper, it has words on it, and your job is to act it out. And so, honestly, I don't have a preference because my job is to act it out. I got to get there, I read it, I got to figure out, based on my skill set, what's the right thing to do to make this right here work. And then you make it work, and then afterwards you have this sense of satisfaction and there it is. So I, I can't say that I think playing, I would rather play comedy than a, than a uh, heavy dramatic scene because I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would prefer one of those over the other because in its own way, it's all the same. Mm, right. Yeah, that, that, make, that makes sense. Has there been a role that you feel has been like the most fulfilling for you? In some ways, I would say, uh, oh my God, I referenced him earlier. I can't think of his name all of a sudden. Um, Iron-Blooded Orphan. McGillis. Just because he was a turn away from young, enthusiastic heroes, and it was very fun to play his darkness. And uh, the main direction I kept getting on that show was, can you talk a little louder? Can you talk a little louder? Because I was really trying to underplay the smolder and i'm sure they hated my guts uh but even so it's a collaboration and i was just happy with the way that that i just liked that one that and um uh kadash i when i saw that movie again for the first time a couple of years ago at a 10 year 10 year anniversary screening that i went to i was like wow that came out i'm, I'm okay with that weird movie right but i'm for my part i was like okay cool Oh, yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned the smolder with uh, McGillis because I kind of liked the smolder in his voice. <laughs> yeah, that was fun, and I also liked McGillis. And you laugh because he never screamed, only sometimes. So those sessions, I was like, oh yes, McGillis. I don't have to go in there and uh, call on the the harder parts of yourself to call on to make the job work. You know. 
like when you're doing the screaming and stuff, I can't, I don't know how to do it halfway. So you got to dig deep. And, and after a while, it's exhausting. But characters like McGillis are in the head and they don't take as much um, physical energy to perform. A little less of work. answers a question that you asked, but there, there is what I said. Oh, no, no, it definitely did. Speaking of screaming, do you have any, like, uh, strategies to kind of, like, remedy, like, no. having these screams? I mean, there is a book called The Zen of Screaming, and there's a way to understand how to support your voice, but to not do damage and to make it sound worse than it is. But the, the bottom line is that it's screaming. And it has to sound like you're being killed. I mean, there's only so much you can, technique you can use to sound like you're being machine gunned to death, uh, especially in, like, looping. When I do voiceovers in feature films and TV shows, which is uh, a, a lot of what I do as well. And if you're, like, I remember working on Black Hawk Down, and we were adding in, I mean, there was no holding back after hopping out of a helicopter and getting machine gunned to death in terms of screaming. There was no way to do that except act it out so no i have no good <laughs> other than support learn take voice lessons and learn how to manage your instrument screaming is screaming especially if you need it to sound as real as it needs to sound for you know feature films and tv shows and cartoons and animation you just gotta power through it mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why I had a job on a movie recently that had to be given away for some technical reasons. And in the end, <laughs> when I found out about it, kind of like a zombie movie, I was like, you know, even one day at work on a movie is a really nice job in terms of money and back end. But it was all screaming all day long and roaring like a zombie, you know. And uh, by the end of one of those eight hour days, it's just like. It's torture. So in some ways, I was glad I didn't have to do that job. Zombie movies are the worst. But I'd be happy to work on any of your zombie movies, anyone. But they do require the most thrashing on your voice, monster movies. Yeah, there's only so much your voice can take. Yeah, what was the movie where Adam Sandler played the devil? Oh, I, I forget you know what I'm talking name. about. Little Mikey? Mm, no. Whatever. But I, I remember working on that movie all day long. And even that movie, which was a kind of a comedy, but it still took place a lot in hell or wherever. And, oh, there was so much uh, growling and screaming. So, like, say, like, uh, movies such as, like, those Adam Sandler movies. Would you pr- approach those, like, differently than you would, like, an anime role? No, because you never know what you're going to get hit with. I mean, obviously you've been called to the session because that your skills are needed, but until you see the clip of the scene on the screen that you're working on, and then you're called up to do it, there is an expectation that that's how quick, <laughs> that that's your preparation. You see it once. And I'm talking about on big movies and TV in front of big directors, there's... You can't see anything beforehand because it's all proprietary. Maybe you can see the cue sheet, maybe. But even then, it only says guy screaming, guy in red screaming or something like that. So you don't know until you see it. And then you get up in front of everybody and act it out. And then you sit down and move on to the next cue. So the preparation is sleep, be on your game. Be ready for anything. You have your skills. That's what I tell people in acting class and voiceover classes. That's the preparation, building your skill set, becoming great at doing it, practicing. So then when it comes time and what you're asking, I've done that preparation 20 years ago, right? That's so I can step onto the stage and I know what needs to happen. And then you just do it. The preparation is being smart, studying, taking acting class, doing plays, even though you think that might have nothing to do with a voiceover, but you keep your skills active, sharp. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you have to practice until you get good. (laughs) Yeah, and then just deliver. 
Mm, yeah. I mean, sure, I've had jobs like on movies or TV shows that required an accent or something that I had to get right. That's different. Then you have, then you practice and you get it right. And it's, but it's just a specialty. You know, it, it happens when it happens. I'm like, oh wow, I guess it's time for me to learn an Australian accent. <laughs> or you know, you just do the thing. And it's also Hollywood, man. We're all faking it to a certain level. Mm, yeah, totally. <laughs> Paul, did you have any questions you wanted to ask? You've been kind of silent. Um, you've directed both, obviously, Demon Slayer and uh, The Promised Neverland. I was wondering, how, how did you, how do you feel about how popular these both of these shows have become? So I, I heard about Demon Slayer, and, and then the the uh, features release in Japan. Is that mostly what you're referring to? Or are you referring to popularity in the states, or both? I was saying in the States, most. Um, yes, kind of. I think the actors are more aware than, than I am. Uh, but I'm aware of what a huge hit the movie was in Japan, which will, there, will, there you know, that is still connected even to the dub just because it's the same thing. And um, so, yes, I am aware, but I have no tangible why I am aware of that. Uh, and Promise Neverland, I I just see people saying nice things about it. I uh, and, and because you hear about that more than other things, I assume that it's popular. But I haven't yet had anybody explain to me, maybe even the way that you just did, that it is in fact hugely popular. Well, I, I think to kind of explain it, I, I think what's happened is is people were kind of shocked and surprised at how good the show was mm-hmm. um but also how the the dub turned out i mean that that obviously contributes that also that that comes from obviously you as as the person being directing it so i mean you know i, I would say like the dub plus you know the surprise of how the show was is you know this is the dub is sometimes the first time that like someone like myself is first introduced to a show. Um, it, you know, you sit there and you go, wow, this is a good show. Oh, by the way, wow, that was some really good voice acting, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. There's some great hits in that show. In fact, we kept saying I wouldn't preview the, the upcoming episode because I couldn't bear knowing in advance what was going to happen. And so it was a game with us in the studio. So when we finally got to kind of the end, we let it surprise us in the studio as well so that we could have the thrill of going, no, that had to be brutal though. Yeah. It just made it exciting. And so it gave us all, and then I got to uh, drop it on all the actors as they came in. That was the fun part. Cause then I knew and each one came in one by one. They don't know what's going on, except the ones who watched the uh, subtitle. Um, and so I got to drop that on everybody as they came in, watch them react to stuff. I mean, I'm not going to say in case people haven't seen it, but you know what I'm talking about. And, right, and right, that, right. that was fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. We don't, wanna, we don't want people that haven't watched it yet to... No, we're not going to spoil it. Um, <laughs> and there are probably like six things we could be referring to right now. Oh, yeah. There's, there's one, a lot. Yeah. One specific thing that I'm thinking. There's a lot. Um, yeah. Speaking of both shows, Demon Slayer and, and Promised Neverland, was there, from both, from each show, was there a particular scene that you were proud of? Uh, or maybe it stuck there's out There's a scene you. in, well, all of those, Promised Neverland is... I'm proud of the work that the actors did the the whole way through because of, like I said, the depth required to pull it off. You know, like Laura having to be that angry uh, kid all the time, and um, and the others really having to to carve out the uniqueness of their role. But there's a scene where um, Crone is dancing around her room. Those scenes with Rebecca, those were really fun to create and they were work. We had to work on them to get them right. But, uh, those scenes I'm particularly proud of because they came out so good and they were, and I know how hard we had to work to get them right. And there's nothing better than working hard to get something right, but then getting it right. (laughs) Like it's worth it. 
So her playing that crazy ass character. What a fun character for her, which I also feel because she's relatively young, at least as far as I can tell. Um, so kind of a stretch for her to get to go that far, that far out. And um, it was just great to help her do that and have such a great result because that's what you're going for. The result is the only thing people see. So, th- so those scenes I'm proud of. Um, what, what about like with Demon Slayer? Because there, there's some scenes in there that obviously, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware that, you know, when they played, and I'm not, obviously there's nothing bad about those scenes, but um, I don't want to give them away, where, um, you know, the internet just blew up like, oh my God, that was a, an awesome animated scene. Like, were there any scenes the, that kind of like popped Yeah, that up show here? did have some very, some nice illustrated beauty, like the the way it looked, the way the way they did water in that show, for example, and you know other stuff. Um, just some of the get to work through some of the emotions that Zach has to do. He has to work really hard on that show, man. It's a lot of screaming. Uh, it's nonstop. A lot of talking. Not to mention there's dealing with the death of his family over and over again, which then requires him to have to go deep in a whole other emotional area. Um, I was going to ask, and Sketch would kill me if I don't ask this question because we always ask directors about this. Are there any like funny uh, bloopers that you guys have? Like, Was there any funny, blo- any funny things that happened in the booth when you guys were recording uh, you know, either show? Those are the kind of things that happen, and I'm always like, oh, my God, R- remember that. And then I can't think of anything. There's always funny <laughs> stuff that's happening. The, I don't... the hard thing now is I haven't been in the studio in a year. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? So the fun stuff that happens, like the most recently thing, the most recent thing is um, it was an intense scene, and I think this was in a movie, and – and when they played the Japanese preview, where it started it from the where the you know Pro Tools played it, I don't know what she was saying in Japanese, but it sounded like this. Fuck you! And so every time we played it, it was in the middle of an argument, and it sounded like the little girl in Japanese was going, fuck you! And, and we played it over and over again. It really sounded like she, that's what she was saying, and it kind of fit the scene, and so... That's Those great. kinds of things. That's great. Otherwise, That's I am a, uh, I am on the stick in the, um, in the, uh, on the sessions. I am not, we are not getting bloopers. I am like, next line, next line, next line. I, I run it like, let's go. Come on. We're not here to play around. Well, the, the reason I ask is, I know for a fact that Bryce, when he records oh, some right. of these animes, he, he drops some things. He, that, that's funny. That's the exception. He did what, – what, did he talk to you about something he did in Demon Slayer? Because he dropped one in Demon Slayer where yeah, he I'm just sat sure. there howling. <laughs> Is that what he was talking about? Oh, God. I'm pretty sure he mentioned it when we interviewed him, but I can't remember it right now. <laughs> Because those are things that are, at least for us, only funny in the moment, right when they happen. And then they're, it's forgotten because we got to get back on work to do. Yeah. That's right. He did He did give a, give a couple of hysterical ones or what we wish we could say if we weren't stuck with, uh, you know, propriety or having to say the right lines. Right. I mean, he's he's done that in a couple shows like Sword Art Online and... Uh, I don't know if he's done it with Attack on Titan, but I've I've definitely heard he's definitely done some funny stuff with Sword Art Online because because we talk to Alex a lot. So, um, but are they things you've heard? Well, yeah, the SA yeah, ones show up yeah. at cons. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been some that we've heard, but like who brings? So someone obviously keeps it, and then because someone has to pull that, and oh, Alex does that. Alex yeah. put for Sword Art Online. It's hilarious. Oh, you know what? He probably has them pull it, and then he just drags it into a folder of his own private. Probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I get it. I can see Alex doing that. <laughs> well, that's just how it would be done. 
yeah. you'd have you'd have you'd do it. We'd all laugh at it, and then you'd say to him, "Pull that." <laughs> is it an audio clip? You know, right. pull it over, drag it, email it to me. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. So those are the funny things we do during the sessions. Otherwise, we're all there to work. Right. And so, especially in a screaming session, it's not funny to get into joking because there's just too much going on to be joking around. Right. So do you usually keep like failed takes for very long or are they usually just they, like they good? live forever? Oh. oh, it's all coverage. If an engineer needs to pull a T sound or if they only pronounced it right in one take and it was a false start, it, it all has to be there. It's all the coverage available to an editor when it's time to sit down and and uh, put it together. Mm. That's probably an audio engineer's greatest blessing and a nightmare at the same time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm often saying, oh, okay, let this be an editor's problem. Next. <laughs> because it's, right, that's, uh, that. once it's left me. But yes, it all lives. It all lives in the bin. I mean, there's the way the tracks work, right? There's the tracks, and then there's alt tracks, and then there's the bin, the file with all of the, you know, Pro Tools numbers each one of those takes, and then they get thrown in the bin, and there they all are. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. Everything. Every single thing. Yeah, it's, it's kind of curious to think there's all these, like, Failed recorded lines that we'll probably never hear. Right. Or bloopers, even. Because we make bloopers and leave them there, but the only person who's going to hear them is the editor. Uh, yeah. Or we just do them to laugh, you know, so that we can hear it back just for ourselves, like you would in elementary school, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Got to bring in a bit of levity, even on yeah. the darkest shows. Yeah. Well, I, I'm—I mean, especially with like sword art, you definitely have to bring that in because it's just like you get too serious with that, and you're just—it probably just gets really stale really quick. That's probably why there's so many sword oh art God. bloopers. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy to make blooper because they can be—they're so outrageous. Like Promise Neverland bloopers <laughs> wouldn't be as funny because it's—it's it's hard to go anywhere that's going to make that funny, but. Something quite so broad as sword art opens itself up to those kind of bloopers right in the moment, I can see. Yeah, plus I, I feel like shows like sword art, there are definitely moments where you could make fun of out of context already. So, like, you could probably, like, get yeah. a blooper off that. Well, like, say totally. Neverland, it would feel very weird at times because, like, it's literally about kids trying to survive from murder. Right. <laughs> Yeah, the the other shows where you can do a butom chick one liner blooper is is different than having to follow a narrative for twenty five seconds just to get to a joke. Yeah, totally. Um, another question that I was that just came to me as well is is um, I, I don't know if you've been dubbing anything while. Obviously, COVID's been going on, but how has that been for you? How has that been for the uh, the voice actors and actresses that you've been working with? Well, I'm sure it's a pain in the ass for everyone, but we've been able to maintain it. You know, it's been able to work, and it's not. I don't feel like statistically we're behind in terms of how many hours it takes us to do a show. It might take a couple more days just because more time is left in between recording sessions for technicalities. Right. As an actor... It's definitely harder. Uh, you, you know, I'm going into my closet, right? Even though I've got a nice setup in there, this it's you have to learn to chase a sink in a whole new way because the beeps don't really match. Uh, you know, there's latency and it's a problem, but you just figure out how to make it work. Yeah. Was so you so you said you haven't been in the studio for like almost a year, is that correct? Or yeah, as a as a director, yeah, not since the end of last January. Hmm. So, would you say so? 
if you have directed anything, um, so it's mostly been from home, basically. Every, everything that you've been doing has mostly been from home. Yeah. Okay. It's all been from home. I have gone to the studio as an actor one or two times, which is my choice. Okay. Um, but other than that, yeah, all from home. And Actors are at home in their closets. The only person at work is the engineer. And so, so that's that's got to be an interesting experience to kind of direct something from home. At first. I thought that too, but then by the end of the first day, I was like, oh, this isn't really any different. There's some latency issues. It's a pain in the ass for the actor to have to be in their closet and then be beholden to a leaf blower. Gardening has become a big deal <laughs> for everyone. And people are like, oh my God, okay. sorry, there's a gardener, there's a gardener. And I'm always like, you have no idea how often we have to wait for gardeners. Do not feel bad release that it's okay we are waiting for gardeners all the time I, I, and so that sucks for the actors to have to go through that that would be some good um, blooper actually <laughs> the latency is a problem because i have to 100 percent uh, not trust because i trust the engineer no matter what but it's on them to make sure that sync is perfect and i i do miss a little bit having the final say on sync, but I can't entirely see sync, and I therefore thank God I can trust whoever I'm working with to tell me if it works. But it does come down to uh, the I feel like the engineer has to be more responsible for that than they normally would because there's no one who can see sync except them. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like the engineers are kind of the unsung hero oh, in like work time. from home dubs. Big time, because they have to come into work. They do the most work of all three of us mm -hmm. with all the clicking and moving and expertise and all of the uh, setting up takes, opening sessions, sliding things, cutting things, keeping track of what line is next, helping make sure I don't skip anything. Like they definitely are the unsung heroes big time. Now, I mean, if you don't, I, I don't know if you can say too much about this, but like how, how do you direct them from home? Do you just do this like over like um, zoom or is it like, yeah, zoom and Skype. Okay. And then do you – because you said that you don't really get to have the final say, but do you get to hear the final cut before it's put out? No. No, um, really? Okay. Yeah, that's why I watch down a scene as soon as we're done doing it because that will be the – I won't – I mean I could go to a view down if I wanted, but I'm working on – you know, that's in the middle of the day. There's other stuff happening. Right. Uh, so no. And really we all make it work. It's just – we're not in the room with each other, but it really goes down the same way it always goes down. Just the variables of technology are, are there. Yeah. Kind of like a new normal. Well, yeah. I, I mean, a temporary normal, probably. <laughs> a hopefully a temporary. Yeah, normal. hopefully. Oh, God. <laughs> well, we'll see, because everybody now has the infrastructure. Like, who knows where it'll it'll lead if a studio may not need to keep such a large facility if they can you know who, who knows but uh the i do miss seeing everybody not from a work standpoint but just from seeing my people right right or like you know if, sometimes if i'm working with someone new i have to look them up on the internet because i don't know I don't know them. I don't even know what they look like. And in the studio, I would have gone out and introduced myself to them in the lobby and then said, come on back. We're ready to get started. But here, you just got to wait for them to call in. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, like, that probably drastically, like, uh, drastically changes, like, professional dynamics, too. Especially with new people. Like, you don't have that, like, first in-person interaction. True. However, the proof is in the pudding and all that really matters is what is uh, on the screen. 
And so that's what ends up speaking for it anyway. So luckily, that's the final say is what you leave in the room. You know what I mean? The work. Right. Right. So totally. yet you are you are correct. But luckily, there's something else that stands for it, which is what you've done when you were there, even though the other part that you're referring to is not happening right now. Well, my last question is something I'd like to ask voice actors. And since you are a voice actor, too, I, I think this is a perfect question to end on. Um, you kind of got into it with V-Lore a little bit, but what is your what is your advice to anybody that's trying to get into the, the voice acting industry? I used to really be able to answer that <laughs> question, but so much got different so quickly and I'm not just talking about the pandemic I'm talking about you know when I started doing voiceovers you had to do an you had to go to an audition no matter what period that's all there was and then uh at home recording started but you still couldn't really send large files but once you could start sending large files uh at home started but not just recording at home like the way you would submit a demo tape. In my day, you would take a tape, when I first started, a freaking cassette tape, or uh, a CD as the years went on. You know, you'd, you would market with that. You'd introduce yourself to agents that way. But now, no one's going to bo uh, bother with your CD. Uh, so there's a whole range of new techniques for getting into the business. Plus, you can kind of... You don't have to necessarily be uh, right there, you know? You can have agents in other cities, and it, it all comes down to your work. So in some ways, what I would suggest, I guess, is just read everything you can read about how to get into acting, how to get into voiceovers, and then figure out a plan, make a concept, and go for it. Well, thank you, Steve, for taking the time to uh, talk to us. We really appreciated it. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me, and thanks everybody else for tuning in. Yes, and uh, and you know, once uh, once the next season of uh, Promise Neverland comes out, and yes, movie, have you well, back on the movie, uh, the the new Demon Slayer movie. We'll have you back on if you don't mind. Definitely, would love to. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, guys. See you later. Bye. Later.